This is the Eclectic Joe, the podcast, 2023, episode six. Welcome, everybody. Welcome to the Eclectic Joe, the podcast. A couple things happened last week that got me thinking, which is always dangerous. Taylor Swift performed over at the AT&T Stadium in Arlington, Texas, this past Friday, Saturday, and Sunday nights. Those Those shows were all sold out and over 210,000 people attended. That's 70,000 people a night. That's pretty amazing. I'm not sure anyone current could do that. And I actually think there's probably very few performers over the years that would be able to accomplish that at the height of their power, so to speak. Maybe the Beatles... Maybe the Stones, maybe Led Zeppelin, maybe Elvis Presley, maybe even Garth Brooks. But that's about all that come to mind. And I'm not even sure they could have done that. And I do think it is different selling out a 70,000-seat stadium three consecutive nights as opposed to sharing the stage and playing at a festival of, say, 100,000 people. I don't think they're the same thing. By the way, Taylor Swift is playing her last five concerts on this tour at SoFi Stadium over there in Inglewood, California in August, this August, in a few months. And I wouldn't bet against her selling out all five. And I'm not even a betting man, but I think she'll be able to do it. The other thing thing was that I was listening to KTCK here in Dallas, and I heard them talking about the albums that have sold 40 million or more. I started looking into it a little bit more. I didn't realize that this could be such a subjective thing. For example, the uh, Recording Industry Association of America, also known as the RIAA, just used albums shipped as its measure in its in its lists or list. Not only that, but according to Wikipedia, the RIAA counts a double album as two sales, like Pink Floyd's The Wall or the Beatles' White Album. But if the album fits onto one CD, then only one unit is credited. Go figure. That I can't I can't figure that out. There are a ton of lists out there, different lists uh, for album sales. But as you look at these different lists, the same albums do keep popping up. Maybe not in the same order, but the same albums do keep popping up. Being a numbers nerd, I like to take into account the world's population as I look at album sales or even streams on Spotify. 
So using the year 1977 as a starting point, the world population was 4.2 billion, with a B as in boy, billion. Just three years later, in 1980, the population had grown to 4.4 billion. 1990, it was 5.3 billion. 2010, it was 6.97 billion. And as recently as 2020, it was 7.8 billion. For those of you keeping score at home, that is an 86% increase in just 43 years. In other words, there are 3.6 billion more people in 2020 than in 1977 that are potential album pur purchasers or music streamers. Now, obviously, not 100% of this number do that, but it does illustrate the, that the pool has gotten significant, significantly larger than it was 43 years ago. Pool of listeners, buyers. I was curious how album sales numbers compare to streaming numbers. And there's absolutely no comparison. And then the, the streaming numbers are staggering. It's, it's almost incomprehensible. According to chartmasters.org, these are the top 10 streaming acts. Number 10 is Post Malone with 32.2 billion as in B as in boy billion streams. Number nine is BTS with 32.5 billion. Number eight, Eminem, 33.8 billion. Number seven, Ariana Grande, 35.4 billion. Number six, The Biebs, Justin Bieber at 35.6 billion. Number five is Grapevine, Texas's own The Weeknd at 41.3 billion. Number four is Ed Sheeran at 41.5 billion. Number three is Taylor Swift at 43.7 billion, but then it really jumps for the top two. Bad Bunny at number two at 52.2 billion. And number one, according to chartmasters.org, number one is Drake with 57 billion. And that one kind of surprised me. Bad Bunny, I can see. Taylor Swift, I can see. Weekend, even Ed Sheeran. But Drake to be number one, uh, and number one pretty comfortably, uh, really surprised me. So if I'm using my, if I've got my numbers crunching hat on, on the surface it appears that each person in the world's population of just say 8 billion has streamed Drake seven different times. Uh, I don't know this to be certain, but I would think that if say your local Dillard's department store is playing a Spotify list that contains a Drake song, during the entire time that they're open and that song plays four times during that day, then that would count as four streams. If you multiply that by just by the number of Dillard stores doing this, uh, or anyone, you know, Starbucks, I don't think they play that kind of music, but anybody, uh, then it is easier to see how streaming numbers can be in the billions for one artist. But it's still, it's still staggering to me. But this podcast episode isn't about Spotify or streaming. I, that may be for a different time. This episode is about the albums that have, that have sold 40 million or more. And that is a very select club at 10. Only 10 albums in the history of the world have sold 40 million or more. 
But before I get to the 40 million mark, let's look at the next mark, which is 30 to 39 million. And again, this list was, I took this list from Wikipedia. Um, but for the 30 to 39 million albums sold mark, uh, there are 20 in that group, in that club. I have 11 out of those 20 albums, and I have songs from another another eight uh, remaining. So really the only one I have neither the album nor the song is, is Bob Marley and the Wailers album Legend, the best of Bob Marley and the Wailers. However, in doing research for this podcast and listening to some samples of that album, I'll probably end up getting his songs, uh, Three Little Birds, Buffalo Soldier, and I Shot the Sheriff, who, as you know, uh, Eric Clapton also did a version of, and I, I remember that growing up more than I do Bob Marley, but I was never a big Bob Marley fan. And yes, I know, I'm really going out on a limb, really stretching my musical tastes with, with those. One of the newer albums, uh, newer released albums on this list is Adele's 21, which was released in 2011. And it, that album has uh, songs like Rolling in the Deep, Rumor Has It, and Set Fire to the Rain, uh, along with others. So it's a pretty solid, pretty solid album, pretty new album for this list. It takes a while to sell 30 million, 30 million records. Ms. Celine Dion, she has two albums on this list, and those albums were released in consecutive years in 1996-1997. That's really hard to do. Falling Into You is the first one that came out in 1996, and it contains the song It's All Coming Back to Me Now, which I always thought, I always thought Meatloaf would have done uh, a good job on, on that song. It sounds like a song he would do May he rest in peace. And also on that album is Because You Love Me, written by Diane Warren. Diane Warren uh, is maybe a familiar name to you because she's written songs for just about every major act out there back in the day, including Hart and Belinda Carlisle, even in Sync, Starship, Chicago, and strangely enough, Aerosmith. So she is a, a music writing legend. Celine's other album that was released the year after, in 1997, was Let's Talk About Love, and that contains the, the theme from the movie Titanic, My Heart Will Go On. So that's pretty good to have back-to-back years of releasing an album, and both those albums sell 30 million. That's just hard to do. The Beatles have two albums on this list of 30 to 39 million albums sold. Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band is the first one, which was released in 1967. Um, It's not an exaggeration to say it sounds as if every song on this album is a hit. Um, Just look at the track listing and uh, tell me one that you don't think was popular, and I would probably disagree disagree with you. The Beatles were also on this list with the album One, and that's the Arabic number one, 
And what this album is, is a greatest hits album that was released in 2000, the year 2000, on the 30th anniversary of their breakup. Michael Jackson has two albums on the 30 to 39 million sold list. His 1987 release, Bad, which contained such hits as Bad, the title track, Man in the Mirror, and Smooth Criminal, uh, among the other many other songs on there, and that contained a ton of a ton of his, hits. Also included, I Just Can't Stop Loving You, Dirty Diana, Another Part of Me. He had a duet in there with Stevie Wonder. It's a good album uh, from front to back. He also released in 1991, uh, Dangerous, the album Dangerous, and that album has on it songs like Remember the Time, Black or White, Will You Be There, and of course the title track, Dangerous. Uh, getting back to the Beatles for a second, uh, I don't want to slight their track listing for Sgt. Pepper's. I did say that most all of them are hits and won't go the, through the entire album, but I will say that this album contained the title track uh, with a little help from my friends who uh, Joe Cocker famously covered uh, a couple years later. Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, which of course Elton John covered uh, in the 70s. When I'm 64 and Lovely Rita. I don't know of many groups past or present that could write a song about a meter reader. They were called meter maids back then, but now we call them meter readers. Don't know of many groups that could write a song about a meter reader and have it become popular, but these guys did. They also have on this list of 30 to 39 million, uh, Abbey Road. This one you may remember has the iconic cover of where they're crossing the street in the crosswalk, uh, lined up one through four. Often duplicated, but never, uh, excuse me, often, well, never mind. I, I can't remember the phrase right now. <laughs> but this album has songs like, come to, excuse me, Come Together, Something, Here Comes the Sun, and The End. Strangely, only one there was only one single released on this album, but others managed to get airplay. And this this is probably their last album that they made as a quote-unquote cohesive band. When they released Let It Be a, a couple years later, I'm not sure that they were as cohesive as they were for this one. But Abbey Road is, is, a, is an iconic album, iconic album cover, and it's worth the listen. Um, what's interesting about this, a little bit conceptual, but the second half, the second side of the album is, is very conceptual and the, the songs do run together, meld together. And that of course was on purpose. Another album on this, on this list is, uh, from 1984, but I sure do remember this as my junior year in college. I'm at North Texas. You could not, you could not go into the union. You could not go, uh, anywhere. You cannot turn on your radio without hearing a song from Bruce Springsteen's Born in the USA. Uh, of course, the title track, well, there was some controversy there with uh, President Reagan wanting to use it, and uh, the words are not really flattering to the, to, to the United States. Um, 
And so, and Bruce Springsteen does not swing that way politically, so that, that did not happen. But this album also contains uh, I'm on Fire and Glory Days and Dancing in the Dark. And of course, Dancing in the Dark had the video where we see a very young uh, Courtney Cox jumping up on stage as if she's been pulled out of an audience of 50,000 and acted all surprised. But obviously that was rehearsed and pre-planned, but uh, this is our first, our first uh, glimpse into Courtney Cox. Another album uh, on here, which is again a little bit newer, if you will, uh, it's Alanis Morissette. It's her debut album, Jagged Little Pill. This thing came out, uh, was released in the year of 1995. She's very angry, very angry woman. She was Olivia Rodrigo before Olivia Rodrigo popped onto the scene just a few years ago. Olivia Rodrigo, I can pretty confidently say, wasn't even born in 1995. But Alanis Morissette on this album, from front to back, she's very angry. She has a chip or chips on her shoulder. <laughs> um, sold a ton of, uh, ton of albums, though, obviously over 30 million. Not bad for a debut album. But this this uh, has songs on it such as "You Ought to Know" and "Ironic" and "Hand in My Pocket" uh, and some other other good ones. Uh, the whole album's good, and and really to me it stands the test of time. You can pop in that CD now and listen to it from front to back, and it it doesn't sound dated. There aren't a lot of references that lead you to believe that this was uh, released in 1995. Stands the test of time. Uh, the last one I'll highlight is uh, Led Zeppelin IV, also known as the Zozo album. Uh, that's the one with the symbols after it, and each symbol means something, and each symbol corresponds to a member of the group. And off the top of my head, I don't remember what the symbols are, but they, they mean something, and they were picked out by the band members. But Led Zeppelin IV is the album that had Stairway to Heaven on it, which never was released as a single, but it was very organically... Uh, very organically, it became a hit, mega hit, still played on classic radio stations to this day, uh, Black Dog and Rock and Roll. Really, for that album, uh, they punch you in the face because the first two songs are Black Dog and Rock and Roll, and they it just it slows down a little bit, then it picks up with Stairway to Heaven, and then the second side also has a lot of versatility to it. So I'll just mention the other albums on that list uh, would be Pink Floyd, The Wall, which of course had Comfortably Numb and the title track, uh, among others. Madonna has a greatest hits. Uh, that's called The Immaculate Collection. That came out in 1990. She, she's on there. Santana with Supernatural in 1999. That's the album with Rod, Rob Thomas uh, and the, the single that they had that sold a lot. This is an interesting one, Dire Straits, Brothers in Arms in 1985. Uh, that one had, uh, I believe, Walk of Life on it. ABBA's pops on there from their greatest hits. It's gold, actually, comma, greatest hits. It's from 1992. Uh, and then a couple heavy metal bands, Guns N' Roses from 1987, Appetite for Destruction, I believe that's their debut album. And then Metallica's debut album in 1991, that, uh, that also has appeared on there, uh, on the list of the 30 to, 30 to 39 million sold. 
So those artists are to be congratulated. Selling 30 million plus of a single album is pretty hard to do. I'm not sure they thought that as they were putting as they were putting it together, not thinking about selling 30 million. I don't think I don't think they think they're going to they don't worry usually about how many they're going to sell. But that's the 30 to 39 30 to 39 million albums sold. Now we get a, get into an even more select group of albums and this is what you would call the main event and now we have some fun. I started my George Washington podcast by saying that time does not diminish greatness. And I think that is as applicable here as it is for George Washington. So we're going to count down the 10 albums that have sold 40 million or more. And we're going to start at number 10. Number 10 is the Saturday, Saturday Night Fever soundtrack that features the Bee Gees and other various artists. Various artists. This is actually a double album and the only double album on the list. Stop and think about that. Of course, nowadays artists don't really come out with double albums, but this is the only double album on the list. This album has even been added to the National Registry in the Library of uh, National Recording Registry, excuse me, in the Library of Congress, Congress because of its cultural significance. I mean, it as you look back on the disco era uh, and you think about the the artists and albums that came out during that time, the first one that you probably think of if you were around back then is Saturday Night Fever. I I, I think it defined disco. Now, if you go back and rewatch the movie Saturday Night Fever or watch the movie Saturday Night Fever for the first time, it it can be a little bit cringe worthy at times uh, if you watch it through the lens of today's ultra politically correct society. But the music, the music still endures, I believe. Even though it's dated, again, disco is an error, that, a bygone error, not around anymore, not coming out with new disco songs. No one's uh, going out and buying the disco, the, the glitter ball from the ceiling. I mean, those, those days have passed, but it certainly was a significant, significant era in the music world. So the first song I'm going to play some uh, a part of is called, it's Manhattan Skyline. It's by David Shire, uh, obviously on the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack. Why I'm playing this is because uh, every time I hear this, I always think about the time uh, that my dad took me to a New Orleans jazz basketball game. And they played their, they played their games back then at the Louisiana Superdome. And they played, they put a basketball court as I guess as they did uh, last night at the uh, NRG Stadium in Houston, but they put the basketball court on the football field. And I'll never forget, you could look behind the, the stands on one side and you can see the goalposts. They, they did not take the goalposts down. But anyway, so I'm probably 12, maybe 13 at the oldest, and he's going to take me to, a, it was actually a school night game, but he's going to take me to New Orleans Jazz basketball game, uh, who are now the Utah Jazz. But they started out in New Orleans, that's why they're called the Jazz. And so we lived about 90 miles from New Orleans uh, in Biloxi. So you tra 
trying to trying to time it with traffic could be a tricky thing. So on this evening, we got there uh, really early, which was fine. I mean, we got to watch early warmups, and uh, I remember being uh, on the floor. And uh, again, this is probably '77, and this song comes on. Now, being a trombone, former trombone player too, this next, which we're not going to hear, but this next, uh, the next part of the song features a nice trombone group playing. Uh, it's it's funny uh, as I've gotten older, uh, or especially as I was when I was in high school, the um, uh, way you listen to music is different now or even back then but back then more so now i guess i i would listen to music and i you hear you hear your instrument you hear it a lot easier and it's a lot clearer to you so uh that takes me back every time i hear it i, I think of that I think about the new orleans jazz uh, who are now of course the utah jazz i always thought it was strange on this album that there were uh two versions of uh more than a woman uh but Tavares who had other hits, but Tavares has a version, their version of More Than a Woman on here. And the Bee Gees had the other on the album, but I think the Tavares version, they actually, they really hold their own with this one.
that uh, that that R and B slash soul sound of the seventies you, you can't beat it. You really can't. But like I say, they 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 did a really good job on this song. But now I want to focus a little bit on the Bee Gees because their fingerprints are all over this album. They experienced a huge resurgence with this album. They had been popular up to this point. This was not, they weren't a bunch of nobodies who uh, had not done anything before. They, they were a known entity. But it had been a little while since they had had a hit. And they get involved with this album, this soundtrack. Uh, by the way, Saturday Night Fever was a very low-budget movie. It, it was not, um, it's not like Steven Spielberg or um, James Cameron or somebody brought their high-dollar high budget to this movie. This was a very low-budget movie. But when I hear the begin, especially the beginning of this song, uh, I, of course, remember the opening scene of the movie with John Travolta walking along the side street uh, it's very, um, it's the first song on the first side. I venture to say it's, it's almost iconic. kind of like the I kind of like the fact also that you can't necessarily understand what they're saying uh, of, of for some odd reason I've always I've always liked that kind of music I was uh was still a big fan of Michael Stipe and REM you listen to early REM albums and there's a lot of those songs you can't tell what he's saying and it's, but it's still good music but it's kind of the same way here with the Bee Gees this next one is the tempo is much much different much slower 
Um, but it's also a great song. I don't want to ruin the movie for you if you want to watch it, so I'm not going to tell you the scene that uh, they really play on it. But uh, How Deep Is Your Love? If you watch, if you have a chance to watch the Bee Gees documentary on How to Mend a Broken Heart on HBO Max, I strongly recommend it. Uh, it gives you the backstory of, as I was saying earlier, how, how they were a popular group, uh, had had a little bit of a dry spell, but they were known. They, they had put a nice career together. Uh, and then when Saturday Night Fever came out, it, uh, I mean, uh, again, kind of like the Born in the USA with Bruce Springsteen back in the late 70s, you couldn't turn on the radio without hearing something from the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack. But this one is, uh, it's a really good song. And it's How Deep Is Your Love. Man, this, this one's a hard one to, to put down, so to speak. Hard one to listen to. Not listen to. I mean, hard one to stop. I don't know what I'm saying anymore. It's a good song. Uh, and going back to the documentary, it's interesting because Noel Gallagher of Oasis, who I can't stand because he trashed my man, my man Michael Hutchins at an award show in Britain one time. But anyway, he made a point, which is a legitimate point, when you have blood brothers singing together, they can harmonize in a way that outsiders cannot. And they have a built-in advantage. And I'd never really thought about that, but he's absolutely right. And especially if you listen, uh, listen to the Bee Gees, not just Saturday Night Fever, but their entire uh, catalog. They, the way they harmonized was 
Um, it was pretty darn good. It, it really was. The next two, uh, the next two songs from that album that uh, are by the Bee Gees, uh, quite the opposite of what we just heard. The first one of the two is uh, called Night Fever. Also, the scene that this song plays in um, was my first exposure to line dancing, uh, albeit disco, because as you, as you can hear, this is a very disco-centric song, but, but I, they line danced to this song, which I always thought, you know, that seemed kind of strange to me, but I was a strange kid, so it, uh, I guess it goes with the territory. This next one is also by the Bee Gees. Uh, John Travolta does a dance solo to this song and it's called You Should Be Dancing.
Good stuff. Uh, so John Travolta, this was his breakout role. He'd always he'd been on uh, an ABC TV show called Welcome Back, Cotter. He played Vinny Barbarino. Uh, got this role while he was still while he was still on the TV show, but this this elevated him to uh, superstar status. He of course would um, the next year release Grease with Olivia Newton-John. Then a couple years after that, he would do uh, Urban Cowboy with uh, Deborah Winger. Uh, all these uh, movies involved uh, involved his dancing and his ability to dance was actually pretty good. And it, it was funny to see him years later in Pulp Fiction where he's dancing with um, Uma Thurman there at the, in the uh, 50s, 50s themed uh, diner wearing his gold toe socks, by the way. So that's number 10 on the list. Moving on to number nine on the uh, top albums that have sold 40 million or more. This next one is Fleetwood, uh, Fleetwood Mac's Rumors. Now there's a TV show out there called Classic Albums. It's available on Prime Video. But Classic Albums does a, it does a great job uh, detailing all the conflict that was happening between the band members in the making of this album. Uh, Stevie Nicks and Lindsey Buckingham, they were relatively new to Fleetwood Mac, but they had been an item, and apparently during the making of this album, they are becoming an unitem, not an item anymore. Uh, Christine McVie and her husband, John McVie, both in the band. Uh, he's a guitar player. She was a keyboardist. She's recently passed. Uh, she, they were having uh, problems. What is interesting about Fleetwood Mac is this, this was their follow-up album to Fleetwood, the self-titled album Fleetwood Mac that came out in 1975. Rumors came out in 1977. Um, what's interesting about Fleetwood Mac is that I noticed it more on this one than their first one with Stevie Nicks and Lindsey Buckingham, but on Rumors, they have three lead singers, if you will. You have Christine McVie, you have Lindsey Buckingham, and you have Stevie Nicks. And these are also the three songwriters, lead songwriters. But if you go back and listen to Fleetwood Mac albums then, uh, Tango, uh, Tango in the Night, Tusk, Mirage, any of those, Rumors, of course, what they do a really good job of is, is passing the baton between the three of them to do lead songs. The, the lead vocalist on the albums are pretty evenly split. And I don't know, I'm assuming it was design by design. If it wasn't, it doesn't matter. It, it certainly was a, a winning formula, whether they planned it or, or not. I think one of uh, Christine McVie's best songs that she wrote uh, is Songbird. And let's take a listen to that.
Boy, as I say about too many of the people I grew up listening to, oh, it's sexist. She's dead. <laughs> but she, she produced. She contributed. This next song, Dreams, has been covered by others. And actually, uh, and my wife introduced me to this version, but the Coors, they do a pretty good uh, version of Dreams. But nothing, of course, usually nothing beats the original. love the acoustic in the in the background of that one uh, again some of these songs you can listen I can listen to over and over and over again never uh, never gets old to me I mean it's not like uh, oh my god I can't listen to another uh, Sweet Home Alabama by Leonard Skinner or else I'll poke my eye out with an ice pick type thing <laughs> but I guess for Leonard Skinner fans they feel the same way about their song as I do about these We'll sample this next one. The Chain uh, was written by Lindsey Buckingham, John McVie, and Mick Fleetwood, which is, as you look at the writing uh, of each of these songs, it really was an odd trio. But it's not that bad of a song. Let's sample that.
We've got some very angry, bitter people here. Can you imagine breaking up with your girlfriend, that your living girlfriend at that, but yet still having to go to work every day and seeing her and, and writing songs and performing with her? That would be, that would be tough. Uh, just the fact that they created such an unbelievable album, I'm sure, was a result of all the pain and emotions that they were feeling. But holy mackerel, it's uh, it would be on a personal level, it'd be tough to, to they'd be tough to handle. The last song on this album that I'm going to play is, um, and I'm not holding it against them, but this became a, a theme for President Bill Clinton's pres uh, campaign. Kind of ruined the song for me, but uh, still I can't take away from the greatness of the song. It's Don't Stop. I like the message. Okay, I lied. This uh, this is not the last one I'm going to play from Rumors. This is the last one I'm going to play from, from Rumors. But as you listen to it, uh, again, listen to the words and, and picture the conflict that's happening and the resentment and uh, just the emotions that's going on. This one's titled, Go Your Own Way. That's a pretty strong uh, message that uh, Lindsey Buckingham's sending, sending to Stevie Nicks. So that's number nine on the list. Number eight, we have Come On Over by Shania Twain. What's interesting about this, first of all, I was a little surprised uh, to see this one on the list, but after seeing the track listing, I can see why. Uh, why it made it because there's a ton of hits off this album now I'll, I'm not a huge Shania Twain fan I'm not sure she'd have a good concert because I'm not sure her voice can hold up performing live uh, she is easy to look at and I know that's sexist but she is easy to look at uh, what is interesting about this album is that all song all of the songs were written by Shania and her then husband uh, Mutt Lang 
Uh, Mutt Lang, you'll see his name on a lot of other, uh, you'll see his name basically everywhere. He is a, a pro prolific song hit maker. Uh, there are songs he does um, that you wonder if you go back to my heart podcast, uh, All I Want to Do is Make Love to You. That's written from a perspective of a female, but Mutt Lang actually, uh, it's sung from the perspective of a female. The story is a, from the perspective of a female, but the person that wrote it is male. So um, what Shania has also done a good job of is marketing many of these songs because you'll hear them on advertisements uh, on the radio or on, on TV, such as the next one, which is uh, Man, I Feel Like a Woman. Sounds like, uh, sounds like this. Let's go, girls. She also did this one, which I can't remember what, uh, I saw it on TV, I saw an ad for it. It's Honey, I'm Home. This job ain't worth the pay Can't wait till the end of the day 
course, my other question is, uh, how many women wear pantyhose anymore? I mean, that, that seems, that dates you a little bit. Um, the panty lines, uh, more and more women wearing thongs, kind of eliminates that, but yeah. So she does change it up on this album. And this is not a bad song, actually. Uh, kind of ballad-esque. Uh, you're still the one. good song this next one i have to admit i don't remember hearing it on the radio but i do remember i, I did have recently see a the video of it and pretty good video i liked it so i thought i'd include it here um, i think it did get some airplay i just don't remember it that don't impress me much funny video and that's why I included it on here and then the last song I'll play from this album is uh, come on over uh, also a little bit slower but a good one Take 
So that takes care of the number eight album on our list, Shania Twain. Now we go to number seven, and this album is Hotel California. A little bit of, not controversy, but a little bit of confusion, or at least for me there's confusion. Uh, do I call them the Eagles, or are they just Eagles? Well, according to the late, great Glenn Fry, may he also rest in peace, he said the band was just to be known as Eagles. But I still call them the Eagles. I probably will always call them the Eagles. But uh, there is no denying their greatness and the popularity of their music. Uh, while when the 18, they were here, oh, about, I think before the pandemic, uh, at AT&T Stadium. I'm not sure they sold out, but they sure had a nice crowd, which is a testament to their popularity, even after all these years and after some needed shifts, unfortunately, in the, in the lineup of the band. There are some songs that start so distinctly, you immediately recognize them, you know uh, what they are, and Hotel California would be such a song. What's funny about this one is Don Henley, who's from a little town in East Texas, lives here in Dallas now, but he was a drummer. And if you see this video, uh, you'll see him drumming and singing. And I always thought that was, uh, I was always impressed with that. Any uh, Phil Collins or Don Henley or 
uh, Ringo Starr when he was when he had his songs on the Beatles or even his solo stuff uh, to be able to drum and sing be lead singer that's uh, that's pretty impressive another opening of a song that you immediately know what it is it's called life in the fast lane and it's a nice little hook to start with This was also the first Eagles album that featured Joe Walsh. And he has, uh, you can tell his fine work on a couple of the songs. Actually, he is lead singer for Pretty Maids All in a Row that is on the second side of this album. This next song was not released as a single, but I think it's really catchy and we'll sample it here. Yeah, I like this song, Victim of Love. Another song uh, that's one of the last songs on the second side, uh, I'm playing here a little bit because we saw Don Henley, it, it was either his birthday or the day before his birthday. It was a birthday concert he put on here in Dallas, 
probably just because he was so relaxed. Uh, he had special guests. He had that Patty Smythe and uh, Stevie Nicks, Timothy B. Schmidt uh, joined him. Joe Walsh joined him. I mean, it, it was an outstanding concert. And one of the thing, one of the songs he sang at the concert was "The Last Resort," which surprised me a little bit. But uh, it sounds sounds like this. It starts out a little slow. It does pick up. It's about a seven and a half minute song. But the last song, and again, th these songs are not a greatest hits album. These songs are an original, original material for an album. But this last one is uh, also slow, but it's good. And it's called New Kid in Town. So you'll notice on this song that Glenn Fry's the lead singer, but the previous songs I just played, it was Don Henley. And so as you see, uh, you, you will start to see a shift in uh, who's, who's the lead singer more often, and it actually is Don Henley. And so that is album number seven. Num number six, I don't have a whole lot of. Uh, this is Meatloaf's Bad Out of Hell. Um, I really... Honestly, don't get into his music too much. Uh, I do like Meatloaf. Uh, well, I did like Meatloaf, another one who's passed on to the next plane. He, he grew up here in Dallas. And though we didn't attend at the same time, he and I attended the same university at North Texas, called North Texas State back then. Um, what's interesting about this is this was his debut album. And so as an artist, uh, you have a debut album that sells this well, where do you go from here? 
And so this song is two out of three ain't bad. And this is the one I do remember listening to the radio. We'll listen to a little bit of it. And then uh, Paradise by, da by the Dashboard Light. I've also heard, kind of like it, it's, it is an eight minute plus song, but uh, two out of three uh, ain't bad is, is really the song that got the most airplay. So again, full disclosure, I've not listened to this album from front to back. I am familiar with this this song that I just played, familiar with the uh, Paradise by the Dashboard Light, but those are the only two off this album that I've listened to or I'm familiar with. So number five, we go back to Eagles or The Eagles. This album is their greatest hits, 1971 to 1975. So if you look at it, 1976 was a pretty good year for the Eagles. They released their greatest hits, this greatest hits album on February of 1976. Uh, that, this album was taken from their first four albums that were released in 72, 73, 74, and 75. Nobody does that anymore. Oh, and by the way, they were also touring, these, touring during these years. And so really it's no wonder it's no wonder that the, they ended up burning out and breaking up a few years after this. Uh, I was about 11 when this album came out, and I wasn't yet familiar with their fine work, but I did, uh, I did like what I had heard from this album. And it's funny, I find some songs soothing no matter how many times I listen to them or what kind of mood I'm, I'm in. And this peaceful, easy feeling would be an example of that.
Good stuff. I think as you look at as you look at this list, you have number seven and number five released in the same year, both by the same group. They're all Americans. I mean, they are each American Americans, not all Americans. Each Americans. I think a very strong case could be made that the the Eagles are the greatest American rock and roll band of all time, and uh, the numbers I think. They speak for themselves and their popularity. They can still uh, sell out smaller arenas all these years later. They could probably go over to American Airlines Center in downtown Dallas and sell that out if they wanted to. This next song is, um, I saw a story, I think it was at the Troubadour that Glenn, Glenn Fry or Don Henley saw something going down or overheard a conversation or something to that effect and ended up writing a song about it and it's it's a it's a good one too
Don't ask me why. I don't know why. But every time I hear this song, I always think of Anna Nicole Smith, the late Anna Nicole Smith and her late husband. I can't remember his name, but I know he was about 90 when they married. Don't know why I always think of that, but uh, do think of that when I hear this song. Another song that is always uh, smooth and mellow from the Eagles is Tequila Sunrise. Very soothing, very, very soothing. A little bit more of a toe tapper is uh, Take It Easy. Now, as I'm doing this, I, even I'm noticing that the beginnings of these songs almost sound the same. Uh, the acoustic, uh, smooth acoustic, but, but they do, after the intro, they do go off into different directions. But here's Take It Easy. Shout out to Winslow, Arizona, where Glenn Fry was standing on a corner, which he's about to sing. Uh, the funny thing is that this song was on their first album, which was simply called Eagles. So, uh, sorry, Glenn Fry, that I don't call you the, don't call you Eagles, I call you the Eagles, and that's on me. Finally, after seeing their three-hour documentary on Netflix, 
on the Eagles or on Eagles, uh, I will never be able to listen to this song again. And uh, it's really at the end of the song, which we're not going to listen to at all because this podcast is already running a lot longer than I expected it to. But uh, it's at the end of this song that there was conflict and confrontation uh, from Randy Meisner and Glenn Fry. But the next one is called Take It to the Limit. So Randy Meisner is the lead singer on this one, and at the end of the song, there are very high notes that he needs to hit uh, near the end. And apparently during this one concert, uh, he was not wanting or able to do it, and thus the conflict between he and Glenn Fry. So number four on our list is Pink Floyd's The Dark Side of the Moon. This came out in 1973 and it has a pretty memorable song called money again full disclosure i don't have any uh, well i have this song now but i have nothing from this album i heard this song uh, on the radio many many times it's still a staple staple on classic rock but uh it's always censored so i like getting the uncensored version of it but the uh, first song and that's not the first song on the album but it's the first song that i remember or maybe the only song i've heard from this album is money by pink floyd from the dark side of the moon
Okay, so we'll cut it off right before the bad word. But what's funny is if you listen to this song with headphones, the cash register comes in both ears and alternates between both ears, and that's pretty cool. Now, I do have, uh, we talked about The Wall earlier, I do have a couple songs from The Wall. Overall, though, I'm not really a huge Pink Floyd, Pink Floyd fan. Now, I did see David Gilmore and Roger Waters in a concert at Reunion Arena back in the 80s, and it was actually pretty good, but that's, uh, that's about it. But this Dark Side of the Moon album is the oldest one, oldest album on the uh, list, again, having been released in 1973. Number three on this list is The Bodyguard. Now, this has Whitney Houston. She has several songs on it and then various other artists. And certainly not to slight the various, uh, various other artists, but this, song, this, this album is on this chart, on this list, because of Whitney Houston and what she did. It is the best-selling soundtrack of all, of all time. Um, Though, by the way, Kenny G actually has a song on the second side, so kudos to him. This first song, Dolly Parton wrote. Uh, usually the people that write the song and perform the song will do the song the best, regardless. But I, in this case, I do believe that Whitney Houston uh, did a better job uh, with her version of it. I would only be in your way So I'll go But I know I'll think of you every step of the way And I Again, kind of like the BG song, some of these songs are just so hard to uh, stop. I mean, they, they really are. But if I remember correctly, again, doing this from memory, which is always dangerous, I believe at her funeral, uh, when they were wheeling her coffin out of the church to go to the cemetery, I believe this is the song that was playing uh, over the over the speakers at the church. Another good song uh, that was written by David Foster and Linda Thompson is I Have Nothing and it, it goes like this.
what's funny is that the movie's good, okay to good. Uh, the soundtrack, I think, laps the movie in terms of quality. Uh, that's, that doesn't happen often. I, I'd even venture to say Saturday Night Fever soundtrack is probably better than, than the movie um, overall. And that's certainly, I think this is the case here. Again, no offense to Kevin Costner, but um, I just think overall. But what I do like about this is that, uh, and this is an 80s and 90s thing more so than today, but when you see the video of these songs from this soundtrack, uh, they back in the day they did a really good job of intertwining the song with clips from the movie. Um, that could be bad because one uh, with uh, Phil Collins against all odds. I can't remember the movie that was taken from, but whatever that movie is, it might be against with the same movie uh, title against all odds. But it shows clips of the movie as Phil Collins is singing in the background, and so you think, oh, okay, this may be an okay movie to watch. Holy mackerel! Uh, first of all, th that song does not play until the credits are rolling because I thought maybe it played during the movie. No. I sat through two hours of that, two hours of my life. I can never get back to to hear the Phil Collins against all odd against all odds song, and um, what a letdown. But but generally speaking, they do a pretty good job of intertwining or interspersing the movie clips from the with the with the song. So it makes you, which I know that's the point of it, but it makes you want to actually go see the movie. This next song is uh, actually written by Ashford and Simpson. Uh, they are a power writing duo uh, back in the, they had more back in the 70s, but this is a 92 release, so they spanned many decades. It's called I'm Every Woman. Not bad, not bad by Ashford and Simpson. So the final song I'll play on this is um, Run To You. It is the fourth song on the album. 
the first five songs actually are all from Whitney Houston. And so Run To You is, uh, again, it, I think sometimes you have to see the movie to see the context or to see the scene that the, the song is played and how it, how it works in the storyline. That's good stuff. That is good stuff from Whitney Houston. So now we, we move to number two. And this is a totally different sound than what we've been listening to up to this point. Number two is Back in Black by ACDC. Back in Black by ACDC. It was released in 1980, and this was their first album after their, their lead singer, Bon Scott, had died. And Brian Johnson is now the new lead singer, and this is the first album that they come up with. This next song is actually their second single and it's called hell's bells
And yes, in case you were wondering, that was a minute and a half intro before any, um, any vocals hit. This next song also on Back in Black is the title track, Back in Black. Uh, it's become really a stadium anthem, not just for teams that wear black in their uniforms, but I've heard it at other arenas and stadiums where the team doesn't wear black at all. It's become very, very popular. Sometimes with ACDC for me, I have to be in the mood to listen to it. If I've had a tough day and I'm listening to this on the way home or in the late afternoon, early evening, every now and then and there'd be a guitar riff that uh, it'll be a real high pitch between that and his voice. It just kind of pierces through my brain like an ice pick. My second reference to an ice pick, by the way. So finally, the uh, last song we're going to play off this album is uh, You Shook Me All Night Long. For those Howard Stern fans out there, you may remember that this is the song that ACDC was playing when Howard's wife's water broke while they're on uh, the side stage and they have to leave to go, um, go for her to have her baby. scene, by the way, in Private Parts, Howard Stern's movie, is uh, he's celebrating his rise to number one ratings in New York City. So that was the end of 
that movie, which I think it was about a two-hour movie, if I remember correctly. So that brings us to the number one album in terms of sales all time. Uh, we've already heard from this artist earlier. Uh, we have not heard. Uh, we've mentioned this artist, excuse me, a couple of his albums already, Bad and Dangerous. But he's got the, he's got the top spot. Thriller by Michael Jackson. This album was released on November 28th of 1982 and sold 32 million copies by the end of 1983. So a, a little over a year. There were seven singles that were released, the first being The Girl Is Mine with Paul McCartney, and the last being Thriller, which was released in November of 1983. By the way, Michael Jackson and Paul McCartney are also part of a very exclusive club along with Phil Collins. These three performers are ones that have sold 10 million albums as a member of a band and 10 million dollar excuse me 10 million albums as a solo artist artist think about that for a minute think about that this first song uh, i'm about to play is the first song on the first side and it has been sampled by the likes of rihanna among others my memory of this song is when i was actually able to legally drink in a bar this was in georgia of all places on our trip on to the 1984 orange bowl as part of the nebraska cornhusker marching band never forget it it's, uh, it was cold in there it was uh, late december it was cold but i wasn't complaining because i'm drinking legally for the first time ever and that was cool never mind that the ho hotel bar was completely almost not completely just about empty there were three or four of us in there didn't matter but this is my memory that that's my memory of this song every time i hear it Pretty catchy, isn't it? I think so. The title track, Thriller, became the basis for what was at that time a groundbreaking video. It was like a movie that incorporated a short film that incorporated the song. Uh, John Landis, who was a famous and is a famous director, actually directed it. 
It produced a dance scene that has been mimicked several times over the years, including the movie 13 going on 30. This is Thriller. at the end of the song that Vincent Price does is great. Uh, if you are not familiar with his fine work, Vincent Price, the late great Vincent Price, uh, do a, either Google or YouTube him. You'll see he was he did a great job of playing uh, pretty creepy, creepy characters. Another song that stands out to me, uh, actually the whole album stands out to me, but another song that stands out to me is Beat It. I remember the first time I heard this song and uh, hear the guitar solo and it sounds familiar sounds in the same mold as other songs I've heard from this group and I thought to myself surely surely this can't be Eddie Van Halen of Van Halen and performing this with Michael Jackson the same Eddie Van Halen who uh, did eruption on that first album of Van Halen's go back and listen to that and tell me that's not fine guitar work um, I'm not going to get into the supposed controversy of did he get paid for it, did he not get paid for it, I don't know. I've, I've seen conflicting stories. I've, I've seen an interview with Eddie Van Halen where he said he didn't want money for it. I don't know. Obviously, they both are not with us anymore, so it, uh, it it's, pardon the pun, but it's a dead issue. But Beat It is uh, definitely something to behold.
Michael Jackson actually wrote that song, by the way. I uh, don't know if he wrote that guitar riff for Eddie Van Halen per, uh, personally or deliberately, or if uh, he just gave Eddie Van Halen the leeway to ad lib. But in any event, uh, there is an Eddie Van Halen solo later in this song that is uh, not too bad. The next song is written by James Ingram and Quincy Jones, and I play a sample of this because if you know James Ingram's work as an artist, solo artist, uh, and you hear this song, this is not in his normal style. Uh, I think Quincy, it shows his versatility. Uh, Quincy Jones, I think we know he is versatile as a songwriter uh, as well as a producer, but this song is on the second side, and it's uh, PYT, Pretty Young Thing, which probably couldn't get away with titling it that today, but again, this was 1982. So in today's cancel culture, I'm not uh, the allegations made against Michael Jackson probably would have canceled him. If not that, then this song definitely uh, would have canceled him. Just can't just can't say those things these days, <clears throat> or in public at least. Finally, we'll end with the last song on the second side. This was not released as a single, but maybe it should have been. But I thought it was a good one to wrap up this podcast. It's uh called The Lady in My Life.
like I said, I think this is a good song to end the podcast on. As you listen to Thriller from start to finish, the the different beats, the different tempos, uh, I think this song wraps it up uh, very nicely. And the funny thing is, I didn't even mention Billie Jean. I mean, there just were a ton of hits off this album. Really easy to see why it is the top-selling album of all time. And so those are your 10 albums that have sold over 40 million. Hit me up if you have comments at Twitter, at The Eclectic Joe. That's my same handle for Instagram. Uh, email address is theeclecticjoe at gmail.com. I will, I do want to go back briefly for a second to the uh, 30 million club, 30 million soul club, because if I didn't mention this album, my, my wife would kill me because she loves this movie. The soundtrack to Dirty Dancing also is in that club, and I don't think I mentioned that earlier. And so there you have it. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, albeit a little bit longer than I expected it to be, but I hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as I did putting it together. Until next time, stay safe, everybody.